Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Ah, welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and today is a special episode for a couple of reasons. For one, I've got one of my all-time athletic heroes on this program for you today. The Cobra, Dave Parker, is going to join me in just minutes to discuss his career. And boy, do we have a lot to discuss. Uh, Special also today because I'm announcing officially the partnership between Super 70 Sports and Past Pros. Head over to pastpros.com. That is P-A-S-T. P-R-O-S dot com and check out the autographs, signed memorabilia, and apparel that you can purchase directly from the pros themselves. And I've got to say, I'm such a believer in what is going on over at Past Pros. Ellis Valentine is the co-founder of this operation, and I can tell you they don't make them any finer than Ellis. The same can be said about his partner, Colin Greer. They're just great guys. They're in this for the right reasons, and I could not be prouder to be associated with them. So, PassPros.com, an official partner of the Super 70 Sports podcast and at Super 70 Sports, get over to their website, scroll down to the bottom of the page, and enter your email address to be signed up for their newsletter, and you'll be able to stay on top of all the exciting news that's going on over there. So many all-stars that you can get signed memorabilia from, or apparel uh, depicting them on it as well. All-stars such as Al Oliver, Bob Horner, J.R. Richard, and of course, the Cobra Dave Parker himself. If you put in the code SUPER70, S-U-P-E-R-7-0, at checkout, you're going to get five bucks off of any Dave Parker uh, apparel item. And I've got to tell you, we've got hoodies and t-shirts with the hockey mask that Dave wore in 1978 when he was coming back from a facial fracture. And Jason from Friday the 13th has got nothing on the Cobra. I'm telling you right now, if you've seen the photos of Dave wearing the hockey mask in 1978 and going up to bat wearing this thing, it's unbelievable. And the hoodies and t-shirts are just so cool. The Super 70 Sports logo is actually on the back of these t-shirts and hoodies. And it's the first thing that I've ever allowed the Super 70 Sports logo to be attached to in terms of a clothing item. It's just so incredibly cool. So get over there, pick up a t-shirt or a hoodie with the Cobra on the front wearing his badass hockey mask. And you'll get a discount when you enter Super 70 when you go to check out. What can I say about my guest today? One of the greatest stars in baseball from the 1970s and 1980s. If I was making my own personal Mount Rushmore of badassery, he might be the very first guy that I would carve out of the mountainside. He's the 1978 National League MVP. He's the Cobra. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Dave Parker. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. You know, you grew up in Cincinnati, which is a great baseball town. 
But you've said in the past that football was really your first love. If you hadn't gotten injured in high school, is it possible that we'd be talking about your NFL career today? Good chance, but uh, I was equally uh, as good in baseball, so I guess I would have had a, a tough decision to make uh, as I uh, got out of school and decided uh, what college. But uh, I was equally uh, as good at, at baseball. So you came up uh, for your first major league action in 1973 to Pittsburgh. There were some real personalities on that Pirates team, and one of your uh, teammates is a guy that I've always really admired in Doc Ellis. And I wanted to ask you just a little bit about Doc, because he was quite an interesting individual and uh, ran pretty deep as a person. What was your relationship like with Doc? Well, Doc was like a a brother to me. Uh, Stoddard was more or less like a father figure. But uh, Doc was a brother who uh, kind of brought me up to speed with what to expect in baseball and how to go about being a big leaguer. Uh, Doc was uh, uh, sort of a universal personality, I I believe. Because Doc was a very intelligent guy, and a lot of people didn't give him credit for that. But uh, I loved him, and he gave me a lot of uh, good at the major league level. You know, there's a game that people talk about uh, from 1974 where Doc hit the first three guys that came up for Cincinnati. I think he got Pete Rose let off the uh, for the Reds, and Doc hit him, and, and then he got Joe Morgan, and he got Danny Dreeson, and uh, I think he walked Tony Perez, and then finally he got pulled from the game. What were you thinking as a young guy up in the big leagues when you saw Doc do that? Well, Doc had told us that he was going to do it. He said that he uh, felt like uh, the Reds was having too much success uh, against us and uh, that uh, if we had any fear, then he was going to show us that uh, they they were just average guys. So he told us in advance he was going to hit everybody, and he hit Rose uh, in the Reds first, and Pete Pete just grabbed the ball and flipped it back to him. And then he hit the second guy and the third guy, and he missed the fourth guy. And uh, the guy that he was upset uh, about missing the most was Bench. And he said, as big as Bench here it is, I couldn't hit it. uh, That's what he said. Uh, But he he had told us he was going to do it, and uh, you know, Doc was that type of guy. He was a man of his word. So, Dave, by 75, you're in the everyday lineup, and... You hit 308 in 1975, 25 home runs, 101 RBIs, and you were really often running from, from that point forward in, in your career. What did it mean to you as a young guy? Obviously, you, you never lacked for confidence in your ability, but what did it mean to you to get established in the major leagues like that? It meant a lot for me to finally get the starting position. Because they tried guys, uh, Gene Clines, they tried uh, Richie Ziff, they tried uh, Dick Sheridan, they tried Dave Arrington, they, they, they tried as a right fielder before they gave me a shot. And uh, when uh, my opportunity came, I was playing in uh, Charleston with Charlie, and uh, they called me. Uh, actually, I, I quit to get to the major leagues because I went home for three days. 
I had uh, won a couple band titles in the minor leagues, and uh, I felt like I didn't have anything else to prove, so I went home uh, because they was uh, publicizing me as a uh, number one major league prospect. And I just said, prove it. So I went home for three days, got a hundred phone calls from Joe Brown and uh, telling me to, to get back to Charleston. And I talked to my mother and my older sister, and uh, they agreed that I should go back. So I went back, and three days later, I was in the major leagues. Wow. I, I had no idea. Well, I guess it worked. They they, they, they paid attention. By, by 77, you win your first batting title, just put up crazy numbers, really, in, in 1977, and made your first All-Star game. And I want to ask you, because Ellis Valentine is a friend of mine, and Ellis has been on this podcast, and Ellis, as you know, had one of the all-time best throwing arms, and so did you, and so did uh, Dave Winfield and Reggie Smith. And so the legend has it that you guys engaged in a little throwing contest before the 77 All-Star game. How, how did that right. go? Well, it went well. Uh, I, I was in Turk's shoes. So I, I couldn't get no traction, so yeah, I really couldn't put a whole lot of velocity on the ball. But uh, the other guys like Ellis and uh, Smith and Winfield uh, really put on the show. But from one, me being uh, one of the players that was participating, I really thought that uh, Reggie Smith had the strongest arm that day because he was throwing balls that were starting off uh, head high and was exploding up in the the stands uh, at Yankee Stadium. And Ellis Valentine could keep the ball with a lot of velocity low. And he threw the ball farther and harder than anybody I, I had seen and keep, keep the ball from being elevated. But uh, they, they, they put on a show. I, I wasn't at my best that day, but uh, they really were. 78, you win the MVP award, and you, you fractured your cheekbone that year in a home plate collision with John Stearns of the Mets. Right. And they, at first, they put you in a hockey mask when you were coming back to, to play after that, and some of the photos of that are still out there, and I've posted the pictures a few times on on Twitter. You look like the bad guy in a scary movie out there with that hockey mask on. <laughs> what was it like? Because I, I know that you abandoned that after a game or two, but what was it like trying to go up and bat with a hockey mask on? That seems like that would be almost impossible. Well, it didn't uh, distort my vision, so uh, I could hit because it's batting practice. Uh, I had a good round. I was hitting balls in the second tier and just uh, putting on the show that day. And uh, I was eligible to play, but uh, Chuck had me on the bench for pinch-hitting purposes. So uh, the opportunity came about for me to go to the plate to pinch-hit, and they walked me intentionally. So uh, the mask didn't uh, have, have anything to do with the, the decision of the other managers. You're the only guy in history that ever got intentionally walked while wearing a hockey mask. That's a record you're going to hold forever, I think. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about the 79 All-Star game because I think for I think for a lot of us, even though it was an exhibition game, if, if I had to pick one game from Dave Parker's career that's going to be the first one that springs to my mind, 
it's probably that 79 All-Star game when you won MVP and nailed Rice at third and, and then threw out Brian Downing at the plate. What did the All-Star game mean to you guys back in that era when we didn't have every game on television and it really was a showcase for the players to be on national TV in prime time with millions of people watching? Was that something that you really geared yourself up for going out there and playing in the All-Star game? Yeah, I, I was super excited. There's an opportunity for you to be against the very best in baseball and display your talents to people that don't get to see it on uh, a day-in-the-day-out basis. So the All-Star game meant a lot to me. It was uh, about putting my ability against uh, the other guy's ability, and uh, I refused to lose. During that era, you guys were pretty much having your way with the American League. I think you guys won 11 in a row between 72 and and 82, so you guys were used to winning. What does that play mean to you? Because you've probably had people come up to you and talk about it for years and years and seen the video replayed over and over again, but that beautiful throw that you made to nail Brian down and at the plate, was was that a situation where the American League guys hadn't really seen you enough to know better <laughs> than to go? Because Brian Downing wasn't necessarily the fastest guy in the world to begin with. He probably shouldn't have tried you. Well, you know, the game was on the line as well. I, I had to make a good throw, and it wasn't about making one out. You know, it had to be a yeah. And Gary Carter made a heck of a play. He kind of went up a little bit to get the ball and came back and blocked the plate. So uh, that play was uh, something that I shared with Gary Carter to be one of the best throws in All-Star history. Was it more fun for you to hit a home run? Because obviously 339 career home runs, you, you, you hit your fair share of long balls. Was that more fun for you or was it more fun to, to, to gun a guy down uh, on the bases? Well, it was a lot of fun just to display my talent because I had above average speed for a big guy with an outstanding base runner, you know, could hit me for average and hit for fire. So it was just displaying uh, my talents was uh, more, for, you know, a lot of fun for me. So 79 obviously was also a big year because you guys went to the World Series, came back from three games to one down against Baltimore and won the series. What are your memories of playing in that World Series? Because you got back and won another one 10 years later with Oakland, but as anybody knows, it's it's hard to get to a World Series. The National League East in that era was full of so many good teams. It was tough enough just to win your own division, but to get there and go to a Game 7 and win it all, what does that mean to you looking back on it all these years later? Well, it means a lot, and it was something that you could enjoy uh, and collectively as a team. And uh, those, those kind of uh, awards and achievements uh, mean a lot to me because it's something that we we all participated in and enjoyed uh, as a team. So, you know, just winning it uh, as a team uh, was something that I always respected and enjoyed doing. Well, you know, you were talking about how Willie Stargell was really a, a mentor to you. What did he mean to that team, not just on the field, because obviously he had a great year and, and was the co-MVP, but what did Willie mean to the guys 
in the clubhouse and off the field. Willie was the foundation to the ball club. Uh, you know, he's our silent leader. I was more or less the verbal leader, the sergeant on. The home run that he hit in 1978 at Olympic Stadium. I'm working on a book, and so I've talked to a lot of people that were there that day. Uh, what are your memories of that home run? I think he hit it off of Wayne Twitchell. Uh, right. Because the people that talk about it, and there's no video of it, so you know all we have to go on is the stories. But the people that were there talk about it almost like it was a, you know, like something out of the Bible. <laughs> he hit it so far. I'm seeing him hit him further, but uh, the ball was hit so far that they put a seat out there to uh, the mark where it landed. Still going up, so I know telling how how far that one was. Uh, Willie hit tremendous home run. He hit the ball so hard that. When I hit a single, I used to be afraid to be at first base because of the way he hit the ball. Uh, but really hit that ball off Twitchell. Uh, I had to be one of the furthest ones I've ever seen. After the 83 season, you sign with the Reds and go back to your hometown there. Was that an easy decision? Were, were there other teams that were in the mix there before you decided on Cincinnati? How did you go about that process of deciding where you wanted to play? Well, my agent, Tom Rich, had some uh, discussions with Steinbrenner and the Yankees, and uh, they couldn't uh, finalize it, but it was supposed to be a deal, uh, a possible deal with me going to the Yankees. But, uh, you know, Cincinnati was in the hunt, and it was uh, my hometown, and I was at, at the 10-year mark in my career, so that kind of made it easy for me to choose Cincinnati. And uh, going home and playing at home uh, with my mother and father, uh, living there, it, it ended up being a no-brainer. You had a number of successful years in Cincinnati. You were runner-up in the MVP voting in 85 and, and were fifth in the MVP voting in 86. And ultimately, your next stop is Oakland, where you played in 88 and 89, went to the World Series both years. and and got another ring in 89. How do you compare that team to the 79 Pirates? Because those are two great teams, and there were a lot of great players on both. What was it like with those A's teams, with Canseco and McGuire and Dave Stewart and all those guys? Well, one, we had both teams had great leadership uh, on the team, and everybody kind of checked their egos in at the front door to, to work hard to come and go. And uh, both teams had that, but as far as the talent, I think there's no no team uh, I've ever played on had the talent that Oakland A did. You had um, Ricky Henderson leading off, Corny Lynx was hitting second, and Seiko hitting third, me hitting fourth, McGuire hitting fifth, Dave Henderson hitting sixth, Steinbach hitting seventh, Tony Phillips hitting eighth, and Walt Weiss hitting ninth. That was an all-star team, and uh, there's no team I've been on had the individual talent that the A's did. What about that earthquake? Because that series, you know, those of us that are old enough to, to remember, but younger people might not remember that that series was interrupted for, for quite a while due to the earthquake. What were you thinking that night in, in the ballpark when that big earthquake hit? We were kind of worried about our wives in there because we had just crossed the big bridge uh, 20 minutes before the earthquake took place. Uh, but all the attention diverted to our families, wives, and kids that was uh, coming the same route that we had came. 
and uh, everybody was on the edge until we heard that uh, they were safely across. One thing I want to ask you, and one of the things that I always loved about you, and and still when I see a picture of it, I just think to myself, what a badass this guy was, is swinging the sledgehammer in the on-deck circle. Where did that come from? How did you pick that up? Because I I still love it to this day whenever I see a picture of you with the sledgehammer in the on-deck circle. Well, it was something that me and Stardust started. Uh, you know, we, we got tired of putting three, four donuts on the bat, so we just went out and got a sledgehammer. Something that you can pick up and add uh, the proper weight and swing it. Uh, so, so we chose, instead of using uh, the donut, the weighted stuff, we just got a sledgehammer. That's got to that's gotta be intimidating for the pitcher to look over there and see you in the on-deck circle waving that sledgehammer. <laughs> around i would think Stardew was kind of intimidating himself <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm telling you right now i don't think anybody would, i don't think any starting pitcher was was real excited on the days that they were facing uh you guys because that that pittsburgh lineup i mean it was pretty tough in and of itself especially having to go back to back with a couple of mvps there but I, I want to ask you about two pitchers that i that, that i love to ask anybody that played in the 70s and 80s about and one of them is J.R. Richard, who, because of his health situation that ended his career prematurely, you know, maybe some people today don't really realize just how good he was. I think maybe he was on his way to having a Hall of Fame kind of career, if, if not for that. What was it like facing J.R. when he was at his best? Well, you had to get ready to swing the bat for sure because he got it up there at about 102, 103. Uh, and he was about 6'7". So it, it looked like he could pull a fastball and reach out and slap you behind him. <laughs> because he was so long out there. And uh, they had a, a T-shirt that I, I never forget the saying. said that the, the first base looked forward when you're facing JR, and that was true. So he had velocity and uh, had good location with it. And the other guy that I always ask people about is is Nolan Ryan. What about facing Ryan? Because both those guys similar in some ways, just because of the velocity that they had. But what was the challenge like on the days that you were going out there and and Ryan was on the mound? Well, I mean, if Nolan had his curveball working, you had an easy 0 for 4 that day. If his curveball, he wasn't getting his curveball over the plate, he was relatively uh, pretty normal pitcher. You know, that all you had to look for was the fastball. But if he had that breaking ball working, uh, forget it. You know, shut the door because uh, he had uh, one of the best hooks in uh, baseball. And when you combine that hook with uh, the fastball, uh, he was unhittable. Well, the, the last question that I have for you is, is one that I think a lot of people thousands of baseball fans uh, not just myself believe in their heart that you should be in the Hall of Fame I, I think I'm talking to a Hall of Famer right now uh, regardless of uh, what uh, the voters may have said how much thought do you give to the Hall of Fame and the possibility that some point down the road that you'll be selected by the Veterans Committee well, I got a good shot for the upcoming uh, uh, voting, and uh, I should know something to July. And uh, my peers know that uh, I should be a Hall of Famer. Uh, my numbers are 
good or, or better than a lot of the guys in the Hall of Fame. So I got people working on it that, that volunteered, called me up and well, wanted to know if it was okay if they made a campaign of trying to get me in the, the Hall of Fame. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm honored to, to have somebody that think that much of me being put together uh, organizations to, to try to get me in. And, uh, you know, that means a lot. Dave, I can tell you for a fact from from running Super 70 Sports that you've got as many fans out there uh, who who love you and appreciate the kind of player you were as as any player that played baseball during the 1970s or the 1980s. It's a it's been an honor to have you on the podcast and I wish you all the best and I hope that in the future we're going to see you in Cooperstown. Thanks and uh, I appreciate you saying that. What a pleasure to be able to speak with Dave Parker today, a guy that brought so much to baseball in the 1970s and 80s, not just in terms of his incredible talent, but in terms of being such a tremendous personality and just exuding cool like few players ever have. So a tremendous honor to have Dave on the podcast and I certainly really do hope that we'll see him get very serious consideration from the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee in coming years because the Hall of Fame would definitely become about 50% cooler on the very day that Dave Parker is elected. My guest next week is Gary Templeton. You know, I said on the last show that my next guest was going to be Gary Templeton. Well, it really is going to be Gary Templeton next week. One of the best shortstops of my youth in the 1970s and the 1980s. A guy who collected over 2,000 hits in his career, made the All-Star team three times, and is a member of the San Diego Padres Hall of Fame. So make sure you tune in next week and join me, Ricky Cobb, as I talk to one of the most electrifying shortstops of the 1970s. Until then, remember to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.